Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton, along with me on this journey of revisiting 80s movies is my co-host, Jason Masick. Hello, Jason. My girls, so they didn't care for the overlook at first. One of them actually stole a pack of matches and tried to burn it down. But I corrected them, so... And when my wife tried to prevent me from doing my duty, I corrected her. Hello, listeners. It's October, so we have the most unoriginal idea to discuss all horror movies this month. Final movie we will be discussing, with spoilers aplenty, is 1980's The Shining, starring Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, and Danny Lloyd. Directed by Stanley Kubrick, this movie is rated R with a running time of 2 hours and 26 minutes. The Shining is based on the 1977 novel written by Stephen King. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. Think of the greatest terror imaginable. A monstrous alien? A lethal epidemic? Or as in this harrowing masterpiece from director Stanley Kubrick, is it fear of murder by someone who should love and protect you, a member of your own family? From a script he co-adapted from the Stephen King novel, Kubrick melds vivid performances, menacing settings, dreamlike tracking shots, and shock after shock into a milestone of the macabre. In a signature role, Jack Nicholson plays Jack Torrance, who's come to the elegant, isolated Overlook Hotel as off-season caretaker with his wife, Shelley Duvall, and son, Danny Lloyd. Torrance has never been there before, or has he? The answer lies in a ghostly time warp of madness and murder. Iconic terror from the number one best-selling writer. A masterpiece of modern horror. The Shining. So that was What's on the Box. The Shining. It certainly was. It was not one of the better What's on the Boxes, that's for sure. I have to admit that I knew... This was going to be a big one that we were covering. This is one of the iconic horror movies of all time. And so when I looked up for the What's on the Box segment, I was looking at the early VHS releases. And I believe the early VHS release was like one of the, the first ones. Because that's I like to go back to the beginning like because there's various VHS releases. And the first one just had a huge synopsis. And I didn't want to read the entire thing, to be honest. It would have taken five minutes to get through. It was great, but it was just overdone. That's okay. Yeah, I stuck with the shorter version and the lesser of the two versions. So I apologize to our audience, but I figured we should get into the juicy stuff. Okay. So let's just get right into it then, because I'm figuring this is going to be a long pod to talk about this movie, because there is so much, so many questions abound about this <laughs> film. Let's start with earliest memories. What are earliest memories of The Shining? The Shining from 1980. Wow. That's a little while ago. Uh, you know what? I did not see this movie in the theaters and thank sweet baby Jesus because I was only six years old. Of course, I wouldn't have seen this movie in the theater. Uh, and I wouldn't see this movie in its entirety until much later, probably late high school. I never read the original novel by the one and only Stephen King. And I do call myself a Stephen King fan because I do love his ideas. I love his concepts. But to be completely transparent, I haven't read many of his books cover to cover. But unlike 
some uh, Stephen King detractors, I do usually like the blend of horror and fantasy, that kind of cross genre that he likes to work within. So outside of that, initial memories? Red Rum. Red Rum. Red Rum. Red Rum. Red Rum. For sure, number one for me personally, Red Rum, man. Little Danny Torrance saying it over and over again and then screaming it and seeing it spilled correctly, I suppose, or in reverse in the mirror in the bedroom as it spells murder. Man, another early memory for me, just a huge fan of really good movie trailers. And that's being Captain Obvious, I suppose. Everyone is a fan of a good, solid movie trailer. But for me, this is how you do it. This is the ultimate movie trailer. And I'm speaking of the original trailer of this film, which is the static shot on the elevators in the Overlook Hotel. It's just a static shot. You're just, the camera's pointed at a pair of elevators in a lobby and their chairs lining the walls like little sofa loungers. And then the scrolling credits and the creepy strings, the music comes in. And then all of a sudden, it's blood gushing from the side of the elevator. If you're looking at the television, it's on the left side. It just starts flooding the room, just flowing waves of blood that begins to move the furniture. And it just actually hits the lens of the camera and it washes over the lens of the camera and then back down. And the credits continue to roll and you just see directed and produced by Stanley Kubrick. And that's all you get. That is the trailer. That's it. No footage, other footage from the movie. It's just the shot of the blood flowing from the elevator. Brilliant, short and sweet. Doesn't give anything away from the movie. And it's creepy as all hell. And it makes me want to see the movie. I want to know what this is about. It's just the way to entice an audience, in my humble opinion. I wish trailers were done like that. Or at least, I should say, teaser trailers. I wish were you know at least done like that today. It's kind of a lost art, in my opinion. Hey, man, early memory. It's Jack Nicholson. This is, for me, probably one of my earliest Jack Nicholson movies, uh, just as one of the our great American actors. It's his temperament, it's his mania, his completely unpredictable behavior in this. It's his look, his smile, his eyes. It's everything. Uh, his insanity in this film. Can't think of this movie in my early memories without thinking of him, of course. Otherwise, for me, personally, all my memories are attached to such a stark and startling imagery and overall production design. It's the massive vacant hotel, just the idea of staying in a place like that. Uh, it's the hotel bar, known as the gold room in this, the banquet room, ballroom slash uh, lounge, the Colorado lounge, the twins, the old woman in the bathtub, the sound of Danny on the big wheel on the carpet, and then the floor, and then the carpet, and then the floor, and then the carpet. It's Jack with the typewriter. It's Jack with the bat. It's Jack with the axe. Here's Johnny. It's Shelley Duvall's screams. It's the hedge maze in the snow. It's all of that. And I apologize if I just stepped on all of your early memories. <laughs> I just realized I may have done that. However, this was also probably my introduction to Stanley Kubrick's directorial style. His style before really looking at Clockwork Orange, which I definitely examined a bit more in college, uh, in film school, but it's Kubrick's shot selection, the off-center sort of pacing and cutting style, the upsetting nature of the use of the sound design, and especially for me, silence. And you know what? Outside of Jaws and even Friday the 13th, this was the movie I was probably the most afraid to watch when it came time to watch it. And I remember that it was definitely scary, but... More than that, it was simply psychologically disturbing. 
It wasn't as much about the jump scares as it was about the fact that it provided this impending sense of dread and haunting and terror. Thus, it just left me with a bad feeling. The other sensation I remember having an early memory, that is, was the this element of confusion and frustration, not exactly understanding what the hell was happening, what was happening to Jack Torrance, or who he was supposed to be, or was this all in his head, and was what was the shining exactly? Bottom line, I remember liking this movie and how it just provides such a specific feeling through the filmmaking techniques. This is a, f- a film to be studied by film students if you're a student of Kubrick and, or a fan of Kubrick. But it did leave me a little frustrated with the storytelling. I, that is definitely an early memory because uh, I'm always left with questions. It is just an overwhelming, potent vision of someone else's work, and it's so singular to Kubrick. And I love watching Nicholson work in this movie. It's a movie that left its mark. That's what I remember, Bill Bant. How about you? So my earliest memory of this movie was one of my parents was watching this on HBO. And I want to say it was my dad, but that doesn't feel right because my dad didn't seem like a horror film fan. I know my mom would have certainly have read the book because she is an avid reader, but it didn't seem right. It was her either. So I'm going to stick with my dad on this one. All right. Anyway, um, so one of them had the movie on and I was in the basement. And for whatever reason, I came upstairs and... I came up because I either had to go to the bathroom or wanted to get something out of my room. And it's one of those things when you know your parents are watching something and you make that stop before you enter the living room and you do that. Is it okay to come in right now? Because mm-hmm. you want to make sure it's not something you're not supposed to walk in. And, you know, you're waiting for the wave or the nod or the okay. So I get the okay and I enter the living room and the movie is on. And I see little Danny riding his big wheel through the halls of the hotel. So I stop. I'm like, oh, wow, little kid riding a big wheel. I'm old enough. I'm still doing the big wheel thing with my friends in the back driveway. I mean, we use it more of like a scooter than a big wheel. So I'm thinking to myself, what's so scary with the movie with a kid riding around in a big wheel? There can't be any issues with this. That was a mistake because all of a sudden, little Danny runs into the Grady girls. And the Grady girls are asking Danny to come play with them and then all of a sudden i see the shots of the grady girls mutilate it all in the hallway mm-hmm. and i stood there frozen for a second and then i bolted up the stairs as fast as i could it took me a while to come back down right and i kind of remember going down the first couple of stairs and going is it okay if i come back down and my dad or mom whoever was new at that point i was scared shitless and they gave me the okay So I ran back down to the basement. That was my first viewing experience of The Shining and definitely a traumatic one. So it took me a really, 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 really long time to even try to revisit this movie. And as we have said in one of our earlier minisodes, most embarrassing movies we have never seen. Yep. I have technically never seen The Shining from beginning to end. I have seen bits and pieces of it but I've never watched it from first frame to end frame. So this is the first time I've actually watched it all the way through. And I was impressed. I think I only missed about 15 to 20 minutes of the movie. So I I had seen all of it, but I had seen it all in different pieces. But yes, seeing that first scene as a kid took me a long time to get around to finally watching it. So that is my earliest memory of The Shining. Great memory, man. You have a great memory. Love those stories, man. Thank you. So let's talk about some of our initial thoughts. So what was our initial thoughts of The Shining? 
Absolutely. And as you know, I'd like to start off with some of the main players, and we should start with Air Director, whom is Stanley Kubrick, the one and only. Surprisingly enough, ladies and gents, he is one of the top directors or most famed directors or well-known directors of film, and he doesn't have the most extensive filmography, but look it up. They're important films. I'll just go over the list really quick. In 1956, he does The Killing. In 57, Paths of Glory. It's 1960, he does a, just a small film called Spartacus. In 1962, Lolita. 64, he does Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. In 68, he does 2001, A Space Odyssey. Ever heard of it? In 1971, A Clockwork Orange. That movie still bothers me. Very much so to this day. 1975, he does Barry Lyndon. 1980, this film, The Shining. In 1987, he does Full Metal Jacket. And then it takes about 12 years before his next directorial effort. And in 1999, he does Eyes Wide Shut, which would be his final film that he had directed. And uh, rest in peace, Stanley Kubrick, who passed away at age 70 in 1999. Moving on to our next main player, Jack Nicholson, the star of the film. One of the stars, I should say, who portrays the protagonist, Jack Torrance. Looking at his uh, filmography, I'm going to go with the greatest hits here. 1974, Chinatown. 75, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Man, then he does, of course, The Shining in 80. But 1981, The Postman Always Rings Twice as well. He does Reds in 83, Terms of Endearment. In 85, Pritzy's Honor. In 87, The Witches of Eastwick. In 87, has this great smaller so like supporting role in broadcast news. 87, he does Ironweed. And in 1989, he portrays the iconic Joker in Batman. And the, the list goes on and on. Jack Nicholson, just one of the all-time greats, hasn't done a film since 2010. Is he officially retired? I thought he was. Okay. Still makes his appearances at the Lakers games. One of the all-time great Lakers fans. Oh, yeah. Always see him courtside at 85 years of age. And lastly, I will just uh, briefly cover uh, Shelley Duvall, who plays Wendy Torrance in this film. And of course, in 1980, she'd done The Shining. But then one of the, one of the all-time greats, man, Popeye. Perfect <laughs> casting. A little sarcastic. But yes, one of the great castings of all time. She plays Olive Oil opposite Robin Williams in Popeye. That was also in 1980. 1981, Time Bandits, one of my favorite least cult favorite fantasy films and in 84 uh, does the short frankenweenie which was a uh, tim burton correct and then uh does fairy tale theater from 84 to 85 uh she was the uh, narrator she was snow white's mother in the show she was the producer on that show from 82 to 87 that was a big project for shelly duvall fairy tale theater and then in 86 she was on an episode of twilight zone in 87, she was in Roxanne with Steve Martin. Anywho, the, those are some initial thoughts on or uh, some initial coverage on our main players from The Shining. And man, you know what caught me? This is initial thought was this first scene, not talking about the very opening of the film when the credits are rolling and we're seeing these sweeping aerial shots of landscape. And it's supposed to be the Colorado Rockies. And then we come to the Overlook Hotel, which is this ginormous hotel up in the uh, mountainous area of the Colorado Rockies. And we know that Jack Torrance, played by Jack Nicholson, is interviewing for a role as the winter caretaker during the off season. 
that's all fine and good. But you know what caught me this time around was this first scene between Wendy Torrance and her young son, Danny Torrance, when they're at home in their apartment in Boulder, Colorado, while Jack is off interviewing for this job at the Overlook Hotel. And it's a very brief scene, but it tells you a lot. And I I just like that fact that so much can be accomplished by a good director and good actors in such a short span of time. And Wendy, you know, Shelley Duvall, just looking a little rough around the edges, smoking at the table while the kid's there, poor little Danny, inhaling some secondhand smoke while he's enjoying a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It's clear that he doesn't like where he is here at this apartment complex, doesn't like where they're about to go. He's aware of the fact that they are going to be staying for the entire winter for about five months, I believe, at the Overlook Hotel in this remote area. And he's like, well, I guess it doesn't matter. I don't have friends to play with here anyway. And then we discover he's got an imaginary friend whom he like embodies through his index finger, the physical representation of his little imaginary friend named Tony. He wiggles his finger and speaks in this creepy voice to embody this Tony person uh, who basically is a boy that lives in his mouth. And uh, that's how Danny describes his imaginary friend. Some creepy stuff there. So we see that they just kind of have this a little bit very modest, almost bare and sad existence in a remote apartment, like I said, in Boulder, Colorado. And it's just like, wow, okay, we're starting kind of in a weird place here with this Torrance family. And then back to Jack, again, this more initial thoughts. Now watching this as an adult, I'm like, holy shit, man, I would never put my family through this. An entire isolated winter in a giant hotel in the middle of nowhere. So I'm like, already not a good look for this guy, Jack. And speaking of which, huge initial thought for me. I did not realize or had forgotten that Jack Torrance, the character, is not a good dude from the get. He's had a child abuse incident concerning Danny three years previous to what we're watching in this movie. We see a conversation in the car ride up from Boulder to the hotel up in the mountains. And he's a bit on the cold side. It's obvious that Wendy's involved in in an abusive relationship with him. And he's in no uncertain terms a selfish and abusive asshole. I had forgotten that. I thought maybe he was like this good dude that then was possessed and turned bad. Right. Not so much, which I'll get into a little bit later. Love the initial tour of the hotel. We literally see so many areas where influential scenes will take place. No shortage of foreshadowing here in this movie. It's great. Although I've seen this movie several times, so I do know what's coming. So I love it because you get to see all the different areas and you do get a sense of the scope and the massive square footage of this hotel and the grounds surrounding it. I did not remember what was supposed to be like this real well, but it is an expositional scene between Mr. Halloran And Danny, Mr. Halloran, who is portrayed by Scatman Crothers. And he tells Danny that he's aware of the fact that he's got this psychic ability known as the shining. And how someone with the ability to shine can see things as if it were like a third eye. Things that would either occur in the future, things that have occurred in the past. It's someone who possesses the shining can recognize another person who also possesses that quality. And that's why Mr. Halloran himself, Dick Halloran, who is the head chef of the Overlook Hotel, he does, in fact, also possess this quality. So he has this connection to Danny. It's just like I'd forgotten about this conversation, how expositional it is, and how even after this like two to three minute conversation about The Shining and about Danny's imaginary friend, Tony, whom I'm assuming is like his internal self-defense mechanism, like a protector that shuts him down if he sees something he's not supposed to see. Or something evil, so he doesn't remember it because it go- anyway, I, I'm not sure. We'll talk about that later. But there's this three minute scene between 
Halloran and Danny. And I'm like, wow, that was great. I'm not sure I learned a damn thing from it. I still don't I have no understanding of what the hell they're talking about. It was cool, though. Okay. Can't get enough of the big wheel scene. I'm glad that you, that was the scene that you saw, Bill, for <laughs> you talked about it in your earliest memory. It is one of the, it's a great, great scene. The sound it's design amazing. is amazing. It's all about that steady cam shot that's following. It's a tracking shot that's following Danny as he rides through the Overlook Hotel. The sound design going from carpet to floor to carpet. And you just, again, it's a great device in order to get a sense of just how large this place is. And then it kind of leads you into the scene that uh, traumatized you as a child, Bill Bant. Yeah. When uh, Danny sees the the Grady twins at the end of the hallway. Uh, here's a question for you, Bill Bant. Initial thought. Is this the real reason that this film resonates with us is that we can relate to the struggle of the writer? The struggle is real. It's a real story about a writer's descent into madness as a result of isolation and frustration with the writing process. Is that what this movie is really about, Bill Bant? I think it is. Yeah. I'm like, oh, hey, I completely relate to Jack Torrance. I understand why he's uh, going into a murderous rage. It's a writer's block, man. I think you could watch this movie without any dialogue whatsoever. It's all about the imagery and the sensations that it provides. I also think it's literally as if Kubrick gave Nicholson full reign to explore. And on some takes, he just lets him do the same line repeatedly different ways and yeah, just let Nicholson cook and improvise or whatever. It's I just love watching Nicholson in this movie. And finally, watching it now as an adult, this movie is still a, totally effective and enjoyable to watch, from a, especially from a filmmaker's perspective and seeing how the creative elements come together to evoke a visceral emotional reaction. But man, like it was just when you were telling me your stories from your early memories, Bill Band, I think back now to when I was much younger watching this and how it simply frightened the hell out of me. Or as it would any other child, the setting is inherently creepy, beyond creepy. Any large building or space that is silent, a hotel, a hospital, a ballroom, an amusement park, or Times Square, or an entire town that's clearly built for a large number of people that has no people in it, is super creepy. And especially watching the hedge maze sequence at the end of this, I could feel what it must have been like watching this as a child. That's the winning aspect of this film. I can feel the space and the surroundings and the elements. I can feel the snow and the darkness and the chill of the air and the dropping temperature and the cold air in my lungs and the sense of fear, getting lost, making a wrong turn and freezing to death. It's horrible and horrific. It's the sensations that it provides for me still as an adult. And that's what scared the hell out of me as a kid. Still loving this movie as an adult. What are your initial thoughts? Okay, before we get into my initial thoughts, I, I want to read this from Stephen King. So this was an interview he had in 1983. And in it, Stephen King said he was disappointed in Stanley Kubrick's adaption of The Shining. Mm -hmm. And he says, I admired Kubrick for a long time and had great expectations for the project, but I was deeply disappointed in the end results. Parts of the film are chilling, charged with the relentlessly claustrophobic terror, but others fell flat. And one thing that King didn't like was the casting of Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson, though a fine actor, was all wrong for the part. His last big role had been in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And between that and the maniac grin, the audience automatically identified him as a loony from the first scene. But the book is about Jack Torrance's gradual descent into madness through the malign influence of the overlook 
If the guy is nuts to begin with, then the entire tragedy of his downfall is wasted. Exactly. Yeah, and I knew that going into the movie. And part of me actually agrees with King's assessment is that I now need to read the book because I need to know the differences between the book and the movie. And I do agree that, and you said it too, in the beginning, you see that Jack is kind of an asshole. Yeah. And he's almost crazy from step one. Right. I really want to see more into the descent into the madness, but he's already started mad. And the fact that he can get more crazy in itself is crazy. <laughs> right. Sure. But I think for me, the highlights of this movie, we're getting into my initial thoughts. It's the music sound design. Mm-hmm. I loved it. So creepy. So awesome. Yeah. Danny Lloyd was amazing. Yeah. Playing Danny Torrance. Yeah. The actor playing the child. Yeah. Yes. That's a really hard role to pull off in this. And I know they told him that this wasn't a horror movie, that he was doing something else. So maybe that's what helped. Mm. But I thought definitely one of the best child performances I've seen, especially in a horror film of all time. He was just great. Great. And the tracking shots, all the tracking shots, steady cam shots. Just love that. This is the film you would take to film class and just study it. Yeah. Break it and, down. And yeah. you said it perfectly, too. You don't need any of the dialogue. Just look at the imagery because it's amazing. It's gorgeously shot. I was just so caught up in just watching the movement of the camera. It's always moving. That's just great. And I think that's what I love about the film. Watching the film, too, like I said, this is the first time I've really seen it in order. What was weird to me is I almost would have rearranged some of the scenes because, like I said, I wanted to see Jack's descent into the madness and it seemed like he was already there before the weird stuff was happening. Like the initial bar scene. I think I want to move that up a little bit. That he's passing the gold room and he sits down and all of a sudden the bartender appears. And it's kind of, what? wait, what's going on? And then he slowly starts going crazy because of stuff like that's happening. And he's kind of accepting it. And, you know, using the audience like, what the hell is going on? Because you don't understand either. But I already already felt like he was already crazy by that point. But I wanted to see the hotel influence him more to become mad enough that he's going to hunt down his family and kill them at the end of the movie. I wanted room 237 to make more sense. Mm. I didn't understand what the true meaning of room 237 is. I realized maybe I need to see the documentary on that, even though I know the documentary is more of people's fan theories on what the whole movie is overall. But, you know, we talked about Poltergeist in the last episode and how the spirit, the Poltergeist, was concentrated in Robbie and Carol Ann's closet. Mm-hmm. Is that the same here in this movie? The, the haunting is concentrated in room 237? Is that what it is? Mm-hmm. I mean, did something initially happen in room 237 to set all this off? The series of events that have happened now for the last 70 some plus years. Right. Another thing was, so what was the trigger for everyone to see the visions throughout the movie? Now for Danny, it makes sense. He has a gift. He has the shining for Jack. Was it the despair that he couldn't write the book and that's what triggered it? And then we look at Wendy, by the end of the movie, she can start seeing visions. Is it just because she's in total fear and terror? Why does this happen to this family? They're not the first set of caretakers at this hotel. The last incident happened 10 years ago. Correct. I mean, granted, we're not going to get all the answers because we can't explain ghosts and spirits and 
why and how hauntings happen, if you believe in that type of stuff. But I thought a lot of stuff was way too open-ended for me. And I know I'm probably not going to get the answers in the book either, because I know that's kind of how Stephen King writes. He has an amazing premise, and it kind of peters off at the end. But I want it a little bit more explained. I don't want everything explained. I want some of the stuff open-ended. And there's a lot of open-ended stuff in this. But I don't like getting to the end of the movie and being too confused. I like to question it, but I don't want to be too confused where it spoils the movie watching experience for the enjoyment of it. I totally agree. That's my initial thoughts of The Shining. Great thoughts, Bill Ban, and it just inspired so many more thoughts, but I'm right in line with you, man. Totally in line. It made me think of some of the questions we had regarding the mythology and folklore uh, surrounding the story of Poltergeist and even Maniac Cop because... There are questions. There are certain things we're just going to go with. Correct. We understand the genre, correct? Or cross genre or a combination of genres, whether it be supernatural, horror, sci-fi, horror, horror, comedy, what have you. We're going to go with the suspension of disbelief. We're all about it. However, you can, I think, cross a certain line where you can alienate an audience. And like you said, it distracts from the enjoyment. So... In this particular case, now speaking of the novel versus the film adaptation, you know, I also would be curious as to what all the various differences are. I wanted to know more about the ability of The Shining itself. I mean, that is the title of the novel in the movie. Regarding like the arc of Jack Torrance is really what I wanted to focus on here because I had that a little bit later in my complaints, I believe, and possibly additional questions. Because there are a lot of questions we're left with here. But I like to see an arc. We want to see the arc of our protagonist. We want to see him embark upon a journey. There's a beginning, middle, and end. What does our character learn? Does does it necessarily have to be a message? Does he have to learn anything? Doesn't have to. I mean, this is a horror film. But we want to see, as you said, the descent into madness is the journey. But if he is starting off as an unempathetic character and then where I made the excuse saying okay well that makes him more susceptible to the evil the possession of the ghostly hotel this hotel that is possessed by what seems to be not just the Grady family or the Grady patriarch that was this murderous person uh, who committed murder uh, murder suicide but it's the ghosts of the guests past of this hotel that had done many, many probably dark, evil doings that now possess the new caretaker, should that caretaker be susceptible to being overtaken, which Jack Torrance apparently is. He's undergoing stress. Like you mentioned, is it because he is uh, a failed writer, because he has shame or guilt, because he is uh, a recovering alcoholic, that he has certain issues and weaknesses that make him susceptible to being uh, possessed by these ghosts of this hotel. We don't know, but that's fine if that's the case. But we don't, first of all, we don't get an arc. And then we don't, uh, there are questions as to then you said, like Shelley Duvall sees visions and then it starts breaking what, you know, you form your version or opinion of what this lore is, what the world is being created. And then the rules get broken throughout things instead of, this gradual, you watching this gradual possession of Jack Torrance that happens throughout where he's dealing with it for himself, like fighting it. 
I would have liked to seen that him fighting this, like something's in, getting inside of his head, inside of his soul, his heart, his body, and taking him over. And he's trying to fight it off. And he can't. He's just too weak and then eventually surrenders completely and really goes over to the dark side. We don't get that journey. We understand that Danny probably represents the light, right? He is the shining. He's the opposite of that. Yes, he can also see these things, but he is the counterbalance to all of it. And he will uh, somehow use his abilities to prevail over the darkness. But you're right. So why does Shelley Duvall see things? Why do we see Jack Nicholson's photo of his younger self in a photo of the Overlook Hotel uh, staff and guests from 1921. It doesn't, and the bottom line is, Bill, it doesn't make sense. And that's what ultimately is frustrating. It doesn't make sense. There is no logic to it. Stanley Kubrick isn't sitting here right next to us to explain it. And it just doesn't add up. There are pieces missing from the lore that create real holes in this because you can come up with theories, but then eventually there are things that still happen in the movie where you go, oh, no, well, Oh, I had it. I had it, but then that doesn't make sense. Okay, I'll go back and rewrite my theory on what this story is. Up now, no, but then that detail doesn't fit because it doesn't make sense. Right, and I think some of it is too because you have Jack Nicholson in this film and he's so great being mad that that's what you want to emphasize. But I loved your point about him fighting. You don't see that struggle of trying not to fall into this madness or craziness from the hotel to murder his family for some reason. The only time you kind of see him fight is when he wakes up from his nightmare Mm -hmm. and tells Wendy that I just had a horrible dream that I killed you both. But he's already so far gone at that point anyway. But his performance is so powerful, you kind of overlook some of that stuff. Mm -hmm. But I certainly wanted to see it. Like I said, that's why I want to read the book. I I really want to see how Jack Torrance was originally written and how he does descend into this madness. What takes him there? Because, yeah, it's an element. You're isolated. You have nowhere to go. And weird things are happening all around that you cannot explain. And for some reason, you are leading you to this dark path and you're following it. And you don't understand why. Right. All right. So with all that said, let's move into some of our <laughs> favorite scenes or moments. What are some of our favorite scenes and moments for The Shining? I think we touched on so many already. Absolutely. But because this is an awesome movie, just breaking down and getting a little nitpicky with some of our problems or questions or holes within the movie already, we're already jumping ahead to our probably our Swiss cheese and complaint segments does not take away from the fact that this is an extremely powerful movie, at least in my opinion. Yeah, excuse us, listeners, if we uh, have already touched upon stuff that we will repeat. Yeah, let's get into some favorite scenes and moments. You want to go first? Uh, Why don't you start us off for this one? Okay. So for me, this is Jack is basically showing his first signs of madness to Wendy. And uh, this is a scene I have seen before. Like I said, I've seen most of this movie out of context. So it's interesting to, to watch this from beginning to end. And there's a scene where Jack's in this. Is it the Colorado room? Is that what the name of the room is? The big room? The Colorado Lounge. I thought it was. I thought they were all called rooms, like the Gold Room, the Colorado. It's the Colorado Lounge and the Gold Room were the two main areas. Besides, and then the kitchen, of course. So he's in the Colorado Lounge, and he's working supposedly on this book that he wants to write. And that's kind of why he's uh, taking this job. So, you know, he's isolated. He's going to knock out this book by the time that the six months have passed and he's done watching the hotel. And Wendy comes in to check on him. And yeah, Jack's not too happy about that. 
<laughs> yeah. This scene makes me laugh because every time I get interrupted, this scene always goes through my head. And all right, I'm just I'm just going to read out the dialogue just because I love it. Awesome. So Wendy interrupts him to see how he's doing with the book. And Jack comes back with, Wendy, let me explain something to you. Whenever you come in here and interrupt me, you're breaking my concentration. You're distracting me. And it will then take me time to get back to where I was. Understand? And Wendy goes, yeah. And then Jack follows up with, fine. Then we're going to make a new rule. Whenever I'm in here and you hear me typing, or whether you don't hear me typing, whatever the fuck you hear me doing, when I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't come in. Now, do you think you can handle that? And went response. Yeah? Good. Now, why don't you start right now and get the fuck out of here? Hmm? <laughs> scene. <laughs> and scene. That scene cracks me up. It's uh, spooky because he hasn't even seen any of the spirits here at the hotel, but he's already going over the edge. Right. But it's certainly a scene anytime I'm working on something and I'm interrupted. Not that I get that upset, but this scene always just goes in the back of my head. I'm fucking working. Get the fuck away from me. I just love it. Oh, completely. And that's why I was being so tongue in cheek and sarcastic when saying, is this movie really about the writer's plight? Meaning what we go through as writers, as in really like playing, truly playing devil's advocate, because I do in no way approve. Condone that, yes. Thank you. Condone Torrance's behavior here, Jack's behavior, uh, and his treatment of Wendy, because he's awful. He is a complete dick piece of shit to her. But (laughs) if we're playing devil's advocate, we're like... Oh, yeah, that's how I feel when I'm right. Don't fucking bother me. <laughs> right. I'm, yeah, I, if, I'm and sure if it's I'm not just sitting here staring at the wall, that means I'm working. That's part of what a writer does. Even if you don't hear me typing, I'm working. As long as I'm in this room. Oh, and it's funny that you thought it was funny because that was part of me. I like wanted to be like, oh, man, he's such an asshole. But then there's part of me going, this is funny. This is hilarious. I can relate. But I'm glad you brought up that scene. Because I forgot what a jerk he is in that scene. And she's taken aback, but she's truly playing the role of like this abused wife. And she's timid and weak and just takes it. And it's awful to watch. And man, he really is a prick. And it was just so apparent. It's like, oh man, I almost don't feel bad for the fact that he gets taken over by the spirits, as you would say. So yeah, great, great uh, scene. Yeah, which can make it scary, too, is that we're thinking he's already succumbed to the badness. Maybe he's always been like this. Yeah, I I think he's clear a little bit more. You can tell he's a little more clear-eyed in the scene. He's not quite possessed at this point. I think he's just being an ass. I'll take a step back. I think you're right. I think he's probably beginning the descent. I think he probably, when he stepped into the hotel for the interview at the very beginning... That was probably the very beginning of him being taken over, but it's still early on in the process where this scene takes place. Which even makes it more scary if that's how he is to Wendy, even if they weren't at the hotel. There you go. You're absolutely right. And you can make the argument that that is effective, that that works. It's like, wow, it's now if he's an asshole to begin with, what's he going to be like once he's 
really gone to the dark side. Yeah, how can you get that much darker? And we actually end up seeing what that looks like, and it ain't pretty. Uh, great scene, Bill Band. I'm going to take it a little bit back toward the beginning. I actually, and this is more of a favorite moment, and it's Danny's first seizure. Wonderful. Oh, man. Talk about tracking shots. The, like you said camera movement. I love the oh, camera yeah. movement as well. And this is where it first started getting creepy for me because we have a slow push in on Danny while he's still at their apartment in Boulder. They haven't gone to the hotel yet. And he's standing on his little footstool. He's just a little guy. I think he's only supposed to be like five years old. And he's, I think, going to brush his teeth, but he's in front of the sink and he's looking in the mirror and he's talking to his imaginary friend, Tony. And he's got his little finger up and he's saying to Tony, he's like, why don't you want to go to the hotel? And I'm paraphrasing it. And he goes into his Tony voice and Tony speaks back to him. And you get a sense here immediately that Tony is not just an imaginary friend. This is either an alternate personality or he's compartmentalized something here because the way that Tony speaks, he actually says, he says to Tony, he goes, I don't want to go to the hotel. And Tony responds, your dad already took the job. He's going to call Wendy in just a moment. And again, I'm paraphrasing here. But it's like, oh, he's calling the mom by her first name, Wendy. And he's saying, your dad already took the job. Like, this is a real, like, this isn't just an imaginary friend. So that's creepy. But the camera movement pushing in on him as he's talking to Tony, his imaginary friend, and the music, the strings start going, as this is happening. And then he says, why don't you want to go to the hotel, Tony? And Tony just says, I just don't. He says, well, you need to tell me, tell me, Tony, why don't you want to go to the hotel? And then it just cuts to the iconic shot. And this is through the mind's eye, through Danny's, like I said, like kind of like third eye, like where he sees the image of the elevators at the Overlook Hotel with the blood splashing out and just engulfing the entire lobby. And... It's like, oh my God, how is Danny already seeing this? He hasn't even stepped foot into the hotel. And is it Tony showing him these images? Or is it The Shining? It is, I'm assuming, The Shining, this this talent, this gift that he has, the psychic ability to see these scary images of what he's about to step into, this world within this hotel that he's about to step into. So he sees the image of the blood coming out of the elevator. He sees the image of the, the faces of the twin girls. And you just get that. And these are quick, quick shots. And then there's that image of Danny himself. He sees himself like screaming, but it's silent. He's just, his mouth is open and his eyes are wide open. It just gives me chills right now. It's a very frightening image because it's him and it's just darkness behind him. And then it cuts and there's a female doctor there looking over him. And we understand that he had a seizure and probably had been unconscious uh, as a result of what had happened in his after his little conversation with Tony. So I, I love that. I guess that is a, technically a scene. I didn't want to count it as a scene. But when Danny's talking to his imaginary friend Tony and has those scary images pop into his head. I love the Tony voice, too. I thought I would find that annoying, but I really liked it. Yeah. More kudos to uh, Danny Lloyd playing the character. I'm glad, you say, I'm glad you're giving his props. Real testament to his performance. Yeah, because the voice is... I mean, how you can't forget it. No, not at all. Yeah, because it almost seems like Tony, because he doesn't want to tell Danny what's going on, so he's trying to visualize it for him, which I wish they did not reuse that shot of the blood in the elevator. 
that Wendy sees it later. It would have been just great mm-hmm. if it was just Danny that saw it because I think that's the only way that Tony could explain that to such a young child that, yeah, you don't want to go to the hotel because there's going to be blood without really showing what is going on there. Yeah. It's a good moment slash scene. I totally agree. And uh, I'm just going to call out one other moment. Speaking of shots and camera movements, I think it might take this shot might happen after that scene you'd brought up where Jack is admonishing Wendy for interrupting his creative process. It's basically Jack Torrance with this catatonic look on his face as he's staring out the window. Oh, yeah. And it's that just slow push in on his face. His his face is like slight, like his chin is slightly down and his eyes are looking up and he's got that Jack Nicholson face, right? With the eyebrows kind of kinked. And he just looks like he's succumbing to the darkness and he barely moves. He's just frozen. And the camera just pushes in so slowly on his look. And you can't look away. Jack Nicholson's got the face. He's got that character face. There's so much going on in every aspect of his face, whether it's his mouth, his nose, his eyes, his eyebrows. His, it's just like you can't not look at him. It's just awesome. It's a great shot. Yeah, he looks like he hasn't slept in a week. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's pretty spooky looking there. I just want to reiterate some of the camera movements and the big wheel. Just amazing. Just yeah. love that. Especially the sound design we mentioned already when he's riding over the rug, the hardwood, the rug. Any of those shots is just great. I mean, that's that low steady cam follow right behind him because the steady cam was brand new at that point. Right. It was, it had only been used in a handful of films. Yeah. And then even the other shot when we see the Colorado room for the first time and it might be a dolly, but when they're just following them along the room in the, in the dialogue and it's a, it's a master shot. And it almost has that sense of natural lighting coming into the scene, too. And they're Mm -hmm. just talking, and you get the echo of the room, so you get the sense of the size. We love that shot, too. And it's just nonsensical talking. They're just talking about the beauty of the room. Just shots like that. Just the shots like that. It's just like any time the camera was moving was just amazing, just watching that all happen. I can't think of a movie where I've seen the camera move especially in a horror film where you see a camera move that much in a movie. It's just constantly moving. Yeah. <laughs> Outside of Sam Raimi riding with a camera on a bike, right. Doing some sort of crazy camera moves. Uh, but no, I agree. When you were describing the scene of them, uh, the tracking shot throughout the Colorado lounge and then following Danny on his big wheel, you feel like you're there. And I was trying to think of any other film where I really honestly feel I truly understand the layout of the hotel. I feel as if though I could feel the the that seventies looking carpet uh, just because of the sound design, because and or the hardwood floor or the echo within the space. You get an understand of the scope, the size of this hotel, and a credit to because it's you know a lot of this stuff was set design and built sets, and it's exquisite. Uh, the details are there, and you. Again, it's just it's sensory stuff here. We're talking about folks, which the expert filmmakers can recreate and make it seem as if it's real. That's the magic of filmmaking. So I'm glad you are uh, pointing out that the camera moves. Yeah, I think what makes it cool because there's this sense of massiveness, but at the same time, it's claustrophobic Mm -hmm. because they're going to be stuck in this area for the next six months. 
It's huge, but they're trapped. And that's what's kind of neat. There's the two are almost playing against each other. It's a great point, the claustrophobic aspect, because eventually you're going to run out of stuff to do here. If you're trapped, no matter how big the building is, so many, so many things you can do. And I love the fact that we do see him riding the big wheels. We see him playing with the little toys in front of the television set. And I'm like, okay, so what are you going to do today? I'm going to play with my toys. I'm going to watch a TV show. I'll go play with my toys in a different room. I'll ride my big wheel around again. Well, the space is actually limited. Uh, another moment or scene? Uh, you go ahead, man. Yeah, I got to go to the, the red rum scene oh, slash yeah. moment. So at this point, Jack has gone full out mad. Uh, Wendy has knocked out Jack with a bat uh, because he has basically threatened to bash her freaking head in. She knocks him out, puts him in the pantry, and she's just exhausted. She, she goes to take a nap, and now basically Tony has taken over Danny mm-hmm. because Tony knows or Tony senses what is going on at the hotel, and he knows that they're in trouble, and he's trying to warn Wendy what's going on, and Tony, it's an index finger that he just moves up and down, and... Tony keeps going, red rum, red rum, red rum, red rum, red rum, over and over again. And Wendy is so exhausted, she's somehow sleeping through this. So he picks up this huge kitchen knife. And at first I thought he was going to, because I always knew that the word was spelled out in red. I thought he was going to cut his finger and write it in blood. And I was like, oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Got a little freak out moment there. But then Danny walks over to the dresser and gets a lipstick and then writes on the bathroom door, red rum. And now he turns towards Wendy with the knife in his hand and he's still screaming, red rum, red rum, red rum. And finally, Wendy wakes up and sees Danny with the knife. And of course, I think if I saw my kids standing over the bed with the knife, I'd freak out. And she grabs him and tries to shake him out of this because because to her he seems like he's in some kind of trance. Like she doesn't understand Tony or what what Tony's all about, but she knows that he's kind of been weird for the last day, saying that he's Tony and and Danny's gone. And she goes to hug him, and while she's hugging him, she looks at the dresser mirror, and of course, off the mirror, it's reflecting the bathroom door. And Red Rum, because now it's backwards, says murder. And then the sound design pops in and you got the high pitch strings and tan, 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 tan. And you're just like, holy shit. Yeah. And then at that point, Jack has gotten out of the pantry and uh, is starting to take an axe to the front door of the apartment that they're staying in within the hotel. So freaky stuff. Love it. Once again, Danny. Amazing performance. 100%. Well, again, testament to Danny Lloyd's performance as Danny Torres, because he goes from the red rum, red rum as Tony to then you see he transitions. He comes out like Danny actually comes out towards the end. He starts yelling in his normal voice to wake up his mother because he goes from red rum, red rum, red rum, red rum, red rum, red rum. And it's like, oh, my God. And like, yeah, to wake up to the image of your son standing with a giant kitchen knife, screaming that would just be completely horrific. Love the fact that he spells some of the letters in red rum the correct way. And then the, when he finishes the word, 
he spells the letter, he writes it in reverse. Yeah. So that it looks correct in the reflection. So it spells yeah. murder. I think Tony was thinking about slicing his finger to write it in blood, but then turns and sees the lipstick on the counter and chooses the lipstick instead. Because I thought for sure he was going to cut his finger and write it in blood. No, I did too. Speaking of camera movements, then to go from that to Jack using the axe to break down the front door to the, the room, the camera movement, because as Jack is swinging the axe, it's so violent. First of all, the action, but the camera literally moves with his swing. So when he swings the axe backwards, the camera jerks backward and then front forward as the axe comes down on the door. So it goes, it jerks back, then forward, then back, and then forward as he's swinging the axe. It's not as if the camera is locked in position just watching him swing an axe. The camera's literally moving with the axe. And it's just like, oh my God, this is violent. But that that red rum scene is just iconic and it's so memorable. I remember as a kid, that's all you, you know, again, what you do on the playground, it's one of those quotes. Whether it's from Poltergeist and your kids are going, they're here. This one was always red rum, red rum. Kids would do it all the time. Yeah, and I remember the first time I saw that section of the movie and didn't catch on at all until I saw the reflection. I was like, holy shit. Yeah, that moment when you see the, the reflection in the mirror is just like, oh my God, stop it. This is too much. This is too freaky. I'm going to try to get through this, one of my first favorite scenes here real quick. I call it the gold room scene. And it's the first scene where we uh, have Jack walking into the the gold room, which is a ballroom with a, it's just a huge banquet area with a lot of t- uh, tables. Like it supposedly holds 300 people. You've got the stage at one end, and then you have the, the long bar on the opposite side. And it's completely empty. And I love the way the lead into this scene. Because you have Jack, who is frustrated by just not making any headway with his writing and now suffering from uh, some delusion and maybe the haunting, the possession of these evil spirits. But he's walking down the hall towards the gold room and he's having these little fits. And this is what Nicholson does best. It's like he doesn't need anything else. He just is thinking shit in his head. And he does these things where you know he jerks his hands to the side. He's like, as if, and this is actually a moment where you could make an argument that he's maybe fighting off this internal battle with this, like he's having with this sort of evil that's kind of taking over this madness that is slowly digesting or or that's uh, encompassing him, whatever, but anyway, or enveloping him. And so he does this thing where he's just like, clenching his fists and he's like getting these like miniature little mini fits of anger. He's walking down the hallway and then, ah, sees the gold room. And then he goes to the bar and it's completely empty. And he's like, oh man, what I would give for a drink right now. And of course rubs his face with his hands. And then when he looks up, who's there, but Lloyd, the bartender. And we automatically are like, oh boy, Jack, he's now, really descending. He's falling into madness here because he's having visions. And I just love the scene because the camera at one point, when Jack actually addresses Lloyd, he's looking right into the camera. Oh, hello. Slow night? Because there's literally nobody. There's nobody. (laughs) He lets out the Jack Nicholson laugh. And of course, now all I can think of is Joker from Batman because he does the laugh. And it's brilliant. And in this scene... Jack Nicholson just cooks. He's just being himself and he's just chewing it up and doing his thing. 
and Lloyd barely has any lines as the bartender. And Nicholson just says, I like you, Lloyd. I always like you. Uh, and he has Lloyd pour him some bourbon. He gets the whole bottle, actually. And we know that Jack is a recovering alcoholic. And he takes a drink from the bourbon and says, here's to five miserable months on the wagon and all the irreparable harm that it caused me. And the bartender Lloyd says, how's it going, Mr. Torrance? And this is my favorite part because Nicholson is just eating it up the whole time. He's just really going for it as an actor. And it's just so fun to watch him, his enunciation and his physicality. And every time he pronounces and says a word and he's just upset and he's pissed, but he's loving the fact that he gets to drink again. And then in this moment of almost he brings it down. He brings the volume down here for a moment when the bartender says, how's it going, Mr. Torrance? And he goes, things could be better, Lloyd. <laughs> it's such a subtle thing just a little problem with the old sperm bank upstairs and lloyd says women can't live with him can't live without him oh, man i just want to watch jack nicholson play i just i like to watch him play and then when he recalls the abusive incident he had with danny a few years previous where he dislocated danny's shoulder he'd come home drunk and danny had had all his writing papers all over the scattered all over the floor and uh, Jack got upset with him, grabbed his arm, and he describes it here as a momentary loss of muscular coordination. A few extra foot-pounds of energy per second, per second. Because he's he's like, oh, it wasn't that big of a deal. He's describing how he truly harmed his son. I, I'm a fan of that scene, just because the camera's directly on Nicholson for a lot of it. It's just like this tight kind of medium shot on him, and it's just great to watch him. No, great scene. I was originally going to put that on my list. But yeah, I agree with you. It was It's certainly a lot of fun. It gives Nicholson some time to shine there. And you really know at this point, oh boy, mm-hmm. this hotel has got him hook, line, and sinker. What yeah. is going to happen next? All right. Um, so for me, uh, final scene I'm going to talk about for her, one of my favorites. And it's all the way at the end. And it's uh, Danny Fool's Jack in the Hedge Maze. Sure. So at this point, Jack has gone full batshit crazy, and he's really looking to kill Wendy and Danny, and he's already killed, unfortunately, uh, Dick, uh, the cook, who has come back because Danny has reached out to him that there is trouble, and we'll get into that later with complaints. So then Jack sees Danny and gives chase, chases him outside into basically a snowstorm, a blizzard, and Danny heads right for this hedge maze that is outside the hotel. And luckily, Danny has the advantage that him and Wendy have gone through the maze, so they kind of know their way around. But it's snowing, so Jack can easily track Danny through his footprints. So Danny has the advantage that he knows his way around, but unfortunately, Jack has the advantage that he can see where Danny is going. And he has a little bit of a head start. So because it's still kind of stormy out, it's night, it's kind of hard to follow the footprints, but he's able to follow them. And Danny realizes that he is leaving a trail and he realizes that Jack is getting closer. So he has the amazing idea that he is going to backtrack through his own footsteps and then jump off in a side trail of the maze and let Jack get ahead and then completely backtrack out of the maze because he'll know how to get out. 
and even is smart enough to cover his new tracks to get Jack lost. So I, I thought it was yeah. really cool how he, in essence, ends up defeating Jack because Jack does get lost in the maze because he runs out of the hotel and he doesn't have any kind of warm clothing. He just has like a, a spring jacket on. And because of the storm and it's dark and even with the lighting, the way it reflects off the snow, you're almost kind of snow blind. He gets stuck in the maze and ends up freezing to death while Danny is able just to sneak back out, find his mom, and then they eventually get away at the end. I thought it was a cool scene. It's very iconic because you see Jack Nicholson going through the maze with the hatchet, kind of limping around because he's hurt his ankle earlier on the film. Danny run for his life. And of course, once again, some great camera movement, great lighting because it's snow and like 13 foot high hedges and there's lighting throughout the maze itself. But yeah, there's some amazing imagery in it. Just Danny just being smart enough to know how to get out of the situation. Who knows? Maybe he got some help from Tony. I don't know. We don't see that. But uh, the fact that he figures it out and save himself from certain doom. Just awesome. Couldn't agree more. That was my last final favorite scene. Oh, is it? I have another one that I, I want to speak on, but but that is it. Uh, you know, for, I mean, for the finale there, because that set piece is brilliant and it is so memorable. Like you said, iconic. I described it a bit, I think, in either my early memories or initial thoughts, where it's, again, the the imagery is what it's all about. There isn't really any dialogue. You don't need dialogue on this. You just You're just watching it unfold and you're like, you're just putting yourself in the situation going, this is freaky as all hell. Claustrophobic, the fear of getting lost, of the, you can feel the cold. It's a nightmarish sequence. It's a nightmarish setting to be in a maze being chased by a killer with an axe. And it's your father, nonetheless, who has lost his freaking marbles. And you know he is looking for you to murder you and... To have the wherewithal, the smarts to, to pull the backtrack maneuver is just great on Danny's part. And it looks great. It's lit great. Again, camera movement, tracking shots. Like, it's just wonderful filmmaking. And Nicholson's performance, man. Danny! Danny! And then, of course, he's starting to get too cold. He can't even make the words out anymore at the end, towards the end. He's just yelling gibberish. He's like... And you're like, oh, man, this guy is doomed now. And Danny's getting out. And the smash cut to the image of the frozen Jack Torrance at the end. Just the, like the icicles off of coming up his face. And his eyes are still open. And he's got that catatonic look once again. Yep, that's his fate. That is his demise. That's how it was going to end for Jack Torrance. And it's brutal. He freezes to death. And so I'm going to jump to one of my questions was, how long do you think it was till they found him? I'm sure after the storm cleared and obviously Wendy and Danny get maybe down to the safe haven or the U.S. Forest Service, they go back up there. Yeah, wouldn't want to be uh, walking upon that site. Yeah, it might be there a couple of days. Mm-hmm. This will be my last, I'm going to cheat and blend these scenes, but all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Well... At this point, uh, Wendy Torrance makes a mistake. She goes into the Colorado Lounge. That's uh, Jack's working space. That's his workspace. You don't go in there. Well, he happens to be off somewhere else at the moment. 
Wendy walks up to the typewriter, sees on the paper, in the typewriter, everything that Jack has been writing. This uh, either script, it looks like some of it's in script format, some of it's in novel format, we don't know. Doesn't matter. Everything that's been written is just the repetitive line, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. And it's in different formats. It's like in paragraphs, it's in dialogue script format, it's a random spacing between the words on each page, and it's brilliant, and it's insane, and it scares the hell out of Wendy. Who shows up but Jack, walks up behind her, and he's like, what you looking at? <laughs> it's great. And now Jack is gone. Jack Torrance has lost it, and she has come down there prepared, though. She's got a bat in her hand. She's backing away from him. And this is the iconic sequence here. And yes, we are going to use iconic throughout this repeatedly. No apologies for that. Jack chases her up the stairs, up the staircase. And it's the scene where he starts just yelling at her. Do you know what I'm going through? I love his self-centeredness here, his selfishness. Like she wants to leave at this point. She needs, she wants to leave as soon as possible because Danny's got a real problem he apparently has been choked by an old woman's spirit in room 237. He's got bruises on his neck. He's been catatonic. He's saying red rum, red rum, red rum. He needs to see a doctor. And Wendy wants to take him away from the hotel. And Jack's not having it. He's saying, do you know what kind of like responsibilities I have? What it would look like if I left this job right now? And all of that. And it's then following her up the stairs. And she just keeps walking backwards, swinging the bat. and. She says, don't hurt me, don't hurt me. And this is the big, one of the big, most quotable lines from the film when he says, I'm not going to hurt you, Wendy. Darling, light of my life, I'm not going to hurt you. You didn't let me finish my sentence. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your brains in. I'm going to bash it right the fuck in. Wendy, give me the bat. Give me the bat, Wendy. Wendy. I like, you just see, this just sees play the whole time. He's doing different voices. He's just insane. After this, well, Wendy actually gets the upper hand and knocks him over the head, as you'd mentioned earlier, Bill. Knocking him out, she drags him into the dry storage room, locks the door. And this is one of my favorite scenes, actually, because it's one of my favorite camera angles. It's an underneath shot looking upward on Jack as he's leaning into the dry storage door and talking to Wendy on the other side because we get to watch Jack cook once again. He's changing tactics. It's a fun thing. It's good, smart writing. It's a fun thing to watch him as an actor go from one tactic to another. He initially is yelling at her saying, let me out, let me out. And you literally see his face change. And then he goes to, uh, I'm hurt. I'm hurt so bad. I'm hurt bad, Wendy. I need a doctor. Help me. And of course, she's not going to help him. And she says, I I'm going to go hop in the snow cat with Danny and take off. And then his that creepy smile crawls across his face oh, as yeah. he transitions one more time. And he says, go check it out. Because he knows he's yanked all the wires out of the snowcat. It's not going to work. So she's screwed. But he's just playing with her at this point and just saying, go check it out. Go check it out. The, again, the camera angle is beneath him looking up at his face and his arms that are pressed against the door. It's a great, creepy camera angle. For me as an actor, it's just, and from a writing standpoint, it's fun to watch him change tactics three times in that scene. Yeah, good call there. I do like when Wendy discovers the manuscript and it is all the same sentence over and over again. And it's a ream of papers that he's written this line over and over again. So there's 500 pages of this. Yeah. I'm glad you clarified that point. Yeah. Yeah. 
I would have loved if she found a page early on where there was the story and then all of a sudden it just cuts into, but that would have been a little implausible because there's literally that many pages. So the fact that she would have came across that highly unlikely. Yeah. It just really shows that he is full out fucking bonkers and she needs to get out of there as soon as possible. Also, too, that is a great shot. Can't believe I didn't mention that either. Where he is—he's literally leaning against the door, and his head's kind of resting on the pantry door, mm-hmm. and it's like a metal door. And the camera is right underneath him, and he just stays in that position the whole time. And he's kind of trying to push the door open just to see if she's going to unlock it, and he's going to maybe right. knock her over or anticipate that she's going to open it. But um, that's an amazing shot too, and it's one of the few almost static shots in the movie. Because mm-hmm. it really just does hold on him the whole time. Yeah. Yeah, good stuff with those. Hey, let's take a quick break and hear from our friends over at the Vintage Video Podcast. On the Vintage Video Podcast, we'll be reviewing every single wide release of the 1980s in chronological order. Over 250 episodes to enjoy and thousands more to come. John enters the store now to order another can of ether. I picture him outside like Homer with the gasohol. <laughs> when for you, when for me. I also like to think about that the kids renew their vow not to talk about the murder. By, by murdering someone. <laughs> They're taking a blood oath with someone else's blood. This stuff is seven times more powerful than uranium. And yeah. they, they open up the vault that it's contained in, not wearing any kind of protective nope. gear. Yeah. And it's wooden crates. Wooden crates. It's like the guys in Chernobyl picking up the graphite rocks yeah. and going, meh, because there's rocks. Hugging the elephant foot. <laughs> just like, oh, this thing's smooth. It's so warm. He turns to dial the number from the classified ad without even thinking about the numbers. <laughs> we know this because we can hear his thoughts, and he's talking about how AJ was right that ninjas are misdirecting him. They're misdirecting him. I really wish that he'd turn to the phone and been like, six, six, five. <laughs> no, no, that's two, that's two, Vintage video. We're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. Now back to our show. All right. Uh, so let's move on to our Swiss cheese and complaint department. And why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have holes. All right. Really quick. Seatbelts. Just the opening scene when they're driving in the car and Danny's... <laughs> And I laugh too because <laughs> I, I remember doing this as a kid also. You're in the back seat with your parents and you're literally standing almost in between the two of them having a discussion. You can't do that now. You got to be in the seatbelt. So I just kind of right. laugh. I was like, yep, I used to do that. And God, that was super dangerous. That's a great point. That's so funny, man. Yeah, the lot, there were a lot of moments I was watching this. And I was like, oh, that's a sign of the times. Oh, yeah. That is definitely one of them. Yeah, smoking in front of your kid and not having to wear seatbelts in a car two huge ones yeah great stuff yeah so for me you know starting with the hole the major hole for me was just the mythology the folklore here is uh full of holes because it just leaves too many unanswered questions and i think you and i kind of covered this pretty well early on uh mainly dealing with jack torrance i had the uh, the issue with his arc but with the mythology of it because in my interpretation and maybe this will help the audience a little bit you know, we're led to believe that the Overlook Hotel is haunted by the fact that a murder-suicide had been committed by Delbert slash Charles Grady in 1970, and that the ghosts of Grady, his wife, his twin daughters, and maybe past guests of the hotel haunt and possess the current caretaker, who is now Jack Torrance. And as his mind is being twisted to madness and thoughts of violence, we see what he sees, the ghosts of the past, the bartender, the bar, the ballroom, the gold room, as it was in 1921, 
And then concurrently, we see what Danny sees. And my opinion is that we're to believe that the ghosts are perpetuating a cycle of violence, which is to be enacted by the caretaker that is now is susceptible to their possession. There's a potential like time warp scenario because here's the three incidents. This is where that poke holes. And this is what we're alluding to earlier is that Jack says when he first arrived for the interview, he could swear that he had been there before, that he knew what lay ahead around every corner. And then with the conversation between, and this is in my complaints as well, between Jack and Grady, whom is one of the one of the waiters in the 1921 version of the Gold Room. In that conversation, Grady tells him that he, Jack, has always been the caretaker. And then at the end of the film, it's supposed to be like this big reveal. We see a photo of a group of these people from 1921 in the ballroom. And at the bottom of the photo, at the head of the whole group, we see a photo of Jack as a younger version of himself from 1921. It's him. So is that supposed to be his likeness? Is it supposed to be him? And it simply doesn't make sense. And honestly, it's a mind fuck and it pisses me off. (laughs) That's my big hole. Okay. So here's the questions I wrote down. So why is Jack instructed to kill his family? What do the ghostly inhabitants of the hotel gain from this action? Are they trying to keep people away from the hotel so they can have it for themselves? Right. Do they want Danny's gift? But I'm not sure about that because we know that Dick the cook has the gift. So that was the big mystery to me. What do they gain from Jack killing? I don't get it. Is it revenge? Is it they just want more people to inhabit the hotel of the dead? Great question. Yeah, I don't think it's answers that we're ever going to get. Yeah, my assumption was that the goal of these evil spirits, again, was to perpetuate the cycle of violence, and that was it. But we don't know why. What do they get out of it? What What is the reasoning or motivation behind it? I, I don't know. And apparently, they feel that whomever possesses the Shining, as Danny does, is a threat to them. Because Grady, in this bathroom conversation where everything kind of goes to hell for me in the movie, I'm I'm in it up to that point. It's that conversation in the bathroom that begins to really confuse me. Because I'm like, wait, what? Oh, Jack Torrance was the caretaker all along. Grady is the one that killed his family, but this is him from 1921, and his name is Delbert Grady. We know from the owner of the hotel that... It was Charles Grady in 1970 that murdered his family and then committed suicide. But this version of Grady that Jack has encountered in the bathroom here in the scene is in the year 1921. And his name is Delbert Grady and is telling Jack that he's the caretaker. And then Delbert says to Jack, you need to be aware of your son. He has this great talent. He has this great talent and he is going to basically fight you. He will deny you what you want, which is to supposedly remain in the hotel and enact this violence. And it's like, okay, I don't know. Why, why, why? Yeah. In doing the research, this is what I read. And this supposedly came from Stanley Kubrick, but to me, it even begs more questions. So Jack is supposedly a reincarnation of that person that we see in the photo. In the photo. Okay. That's one theory. Got it. Okay. But... If that's the case, like I said, it opens more questions. So why does he come back? So, sorry, it may not be a theory. You, you said that is in the novel. He is a reincarnation? That came from Stan. Oh, that's from Kubrick. Sorry. Yeah. So that, okay. So that's his interpretation. That's where he, Correct. where he 
made an adaptation here. He took it Correct. in a different direction. Okay. Which is interesting, which I am all for, because that's one theory I had as well. It's like, oh, he's this evil incarnate, like, or reincarnated. But why do they want to keep doing this cycle then? And how would he look exactly like the guy in the photo then? I don't know. It can't be Jack. He bears too much of a resemblance to the guy in the photo. It is him. Right. Just use a different guy that happened to be, I don't know, but it just doesn't, it can't be him, him. Yeah, it's literally hurting my head. You can be the reincarnated version of somebody, but you can't actually physically look like that person. You can embody the spirit or inhabit the spirit of it, or, or are you just like the doppelganger or like some sort of... We don't know. Not only, you're reincarnated physically as well. You look identical to the person that committed these heinous crimes Back in 1921? I don't know. Or, or did he? I don't know. I don't know that many reincarnated people, so I don't know. If <laughs> honest, Why don't so. you have the answers? <laughs> yeah, I know. Call your reincarnated friends. So here's another question. Mm -hmm. Why do we care what day of the week or what time it is in the movie? Mm. Okay, I understand one month later, but why do we need to know it's a Tuesday or it's 8 o'clock? We don't understand where they are time-wise. It doesn't do anything for me. I'm like, Tuesday of what? Tuesday of the third month they're there? Still Tuesday of the first month they're there? Is it the Tuesday a month before they're supposed to get out? I don't know. I don't give a shit if it's 8 o'clock in the morning either. <laughs> I totally, I agree with you. I think, I, I was wondering the same thing. It's a good call. It's a great complaint. I, though, was going, okay, this is kind of for, for the audience to experience the passage of time and understand that being isolated in this space or this claustrophobic, what becomes a claustrophobic space, even though it's an enormous space, the passage of time, it gets slower and slower in a way. So it goes from week to week or day to day, and then now it's going from hour to hour, and it's kind of compressed. I think it's done with some purpose. It's just a little not quite as effective or beyond. It almost reminds me of when we did, what is it, To Live and Die in L.A. Oh, yeah, has the, the time stamps. And I'm like, yes, these are completely, <laughs> like useless. Yeah, we why, don't, do we, we don't care. Why do we need this? Yeah. But it's a good call. Yeah, they're not necessary. No, the first one is. The one month later is, or a couple yes, of them. That yeah, one a couple I'm, of them yeah, That one I'm fine. But then after that, I don't care. How about the character of Dick Halloran? Oh, man. I got this too. Go ahead. Yeah. You know, let's discuss him for a second because I think it's necessary for some exposition or explanation of the psychic ability of The Shining. Like, we need a Mr. Halloran in this, and he is in the novelization as well. However, his character seems underused or misused in this version. He's fine in the beginning, and he's a very warm, likable character. We want to root for him. I like him. I like uh, Scatman Crothers who plays him. He exudes a certain warmth and friendliness and a caretaker unto himself, right? He's the head chef. He cares about the hotel and the kitchen, and he gives Danny a great tour, but then sits him down and has a real conversation about this shared ability that they have known as The Shining and that they have this psychic ability, and he's trying to get some information from Danny, and he wants to take care of, but... We don't see him then, and then he gets called in at the end because Danny has this psychic connection with him, which is kind of, he calls out to Mr. Halloran, who's now in Miami and has to come all the way back to Colorado to check on the family and gets an axe to the chest. And then he's done. Yeah, they spend 15 minutes of him trying to get back there. And I thought if they made that movie today, he would find Wendy and Danny, and he would try to 
somehow hide them through the hotel to try to get back to the snowcat. And then he would end up sacrificing himself so they could get free. Right. And in the novel, he survives. He does almost that. <laughs> he gets them. Oh, does he? Yeah. Oh, okay. Where I don't know if he used movie... the snowcat or if that's even a factor, but he survives. He gets them out. And then it cuts to like a year later and she, I believe, Wendy's uh, healing from injuries and he's kind of looking after Danny, et cetera. But something to that effect. Yeah. Which is funny in this movie. He goes through all this trouble to get there and he doesn't even see them. He takes an axe to the chest, and that's it's it. weird. The we the, the with him in Miami, and then catching a flight, and we actually have a scene with him on the airplane, and then getting the snowcat and driving the snowcat back to the. It's like, why are we spending time on this? That was confusing. Yeah, because he's got to fly out there. Then it's a five hour drive. He says to get the snowcat, and then the snowcat's going to take another. That's a lot to go through to just get axed and not even know if Danny's still okay. That was tough. Hell yeah, I did not like that at all putting a lot of effort just to get killed. And- it's a good jump scare, though. Yeah, Oh, yeah. Because I, for- I forgot about that. I had seen that before. Oh, I knew it was coming, and it still freaks me out. I knew exactly where he was. I'm like, oh, yeah, I know where Jack's coming out from. <laughs> but, yeah, I think that's part of the movie that I missed was up until, I think, from when he sees Charles in the bathroom up until Dick calls his friend for the snowcat. That's the section of the movie I'd never seen, but that was all new to me. Mm-hmm. It's violent. And it's the only kill in the movie. Yeah. A couple of, only like two deaths, technically, if we don't count seeing bodies. Right. There's only two deaths, and that's the only actual murder we witness. Mm -hmm. All right. So my next complaint, Wendy could have climbed out of the bathroom window. Once she gets her shoulders through, she's golden. She shouldn't be able to get out and go through. Your shoulders are your widest part of your body. She's 100 pounds soaking soaking wet. wet. She should have been able to get through the window. And, and it shows that she gets her arms completely through. Yeah. But then, I mean, then we don't get the here's Johnny scene. And we ha- right. if we don't mention that in this podcast, everybody's going to be screaming at us. So, Oh, of course. And that is an iconic scene. We only have time to, to mention so many scenes in this. But the, yeah. If we don't say here's Johnny. Totally glossed over the here's Johnny in my earliest memories. But that is the axe through the bathroom door and her screaming. This I watched this on HBO Max. And that's the screen grab for it when you pull it up. Oh, yeah. Her image of her screaming, her mouth like wide open. She looks so scared and terrified. And it's a creepy look on her face with the axe in the foreground, the head of the axe coming through. It's a great image. Right. Yeah. When she's leaning against, like she's up against the corner and the axe is coming through the door. Because usually you see it's his face. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. Him saying, here's Johnny. Mm -hmm. I always like the moment before that when he comes initially and goes, Wendy, I'm home. <laughs> right. Yeah. The here's Johnny. Here's Johnny. But I agree. Shelley Duvall was uh, wayfish. She could have squeezed through that window. So, yeah, my final complaint is just regarding Danny's power, the psychic ability known as The Shining. I feel as though Danny's great talent, quote unquote, as Grady calls it, or gift could have been used more effectively or with some purpose as to how to overcome the obstacle at hand, namely to prevent, obviously, his insane father from killing him and his mother. But it's never used as much like in a way to resolve a problem. Danny's talent is a clear threat to the spirits of the hotel. And I assume that he could see the visions of the spirits or whatever for the evil that they are. And thus would he poses a threat because he wants to take his family away from the hotel and the spirits want to capture them within the hotel. But the shining itself is never like clearly defined as how it can be used to either defeat 
this evil are used to overcome an obstacle. At least it's not like used in a practical manner. Like as in like, again, his imaginary friend Tony is never clearly defined as to his purpose either. I'm assuming that either Tony is basically when, especially like a child endures trauma, there's what happens is a disassociation. And that's where a split personality scenario could happen or you compartmentalize or you, you know, again, disassociate and Tony is formed and the Tony is the self-defense mechanism that is trying to protect Danny uh, and shuts Danny down. And then Tony is the one that comes out, but being a fan of lore, et cetera, this is where a lot of our complaints and questions come from. And I would have liked to have seen Danny, for instance, in that hedge maze sequence at the end, it's so wonderful the tactic that he uses, and he's just this—he comes up with a smart kid. He backtracks, and that's how he basically defeats his insane father. But I also wanted to see him use his powers. He just doesn't know how to use it yet. He needs to find his Jedi master to teach him. The right. Ways. So he's just which couldn't see, and that's kind of what uh, you're hoping. Maybe Mister Halloran would have been like the mentor, as Obi Wan. You know? Yeah, if he had survived, <laughs> he could have did that for him. But I guess in the book version, he can. Yeah. I guess we'd have to find in the sequel. Was it Dr. Sleep? Yeah, that, I had that in my questions if you'd seen that yet. No, I had neither seen or read. I actually got a really strong recommendation from a friend of mine to watch it and said uh, somebody that I, I respect his opinion. And uh, he said it was great. I've heard actually pretty positive things about that movie. It's gotten decent reviews. Okay. All right. Moving on. Let's do it. To Hey, it's an actor. All right. So in this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's Hey, it's an actor. So the last two podcasts we've done, we have matched. I'm hoping we're not going three for three here. So I'm going to let you go first. Okay. My Hey, it's that actor from The Shining is Tony Burton, who plays the role of Durkin. I almost picked him. I'm glad I didn't. Yes. All right. So we're not matching today. Yay. I thought you thought I was going to choose someone else because they were in Miami Vice, which I, I was tempted to do. Tony Burton plays the role of Durkin, who is the African-American gentleman working at the garage somewhere in the Colorado Rockies, somewhere not too far from the Overlook Hotel. He's the guy that Mr. Halloran, Dick Halloran, calls from Stapleton Airport and asks Durkin, he says, hey, I uh, need you to have a snowcat ready for me so I can get up to the Overlook Hotel. And Durkin's like, all right, no problem, buddy. So Tony Burton, as soon as I saw him, I don't know if it was something about his face, something about his smile. I'm like, I know that guy. I recognize that guy's voice. He's a good character actor. And then, of course, I look up his filmography on IMDb, and he is more than well known as... Apollo's trainer from the Rocky franchise. So a little bit, a little snapshot of his filmography in 1976 in the first film, Rocky, he was Apollo's trainer. Then in 1979, he was in a film entitled Rocky II as Apollo's trainer. <laughs> he was in this in 1980, The Shining. And also in 1980, he went uncredited, but on IMDb is credited as Guy Who Punches Big Mean. In Stir Crazy, yep. <laughs> which we did in this. Also in 1980, he's in a film called Inside Moves. I just wanted to mention the fact that he had a part on an episode of uh, The Greatest American Hero in 1981. One of my favorite shows. 1982, he's in Rocky Three, and now his character has a name. He's not just Apollo's trainer. He's Duke. 
1985, he's in Rocky IV as Duke. 1986, he's in Armed and Dangerous. Uh, he was on a show called Frank's Place from 87 to 88. He played the role of Big Arthur. He's in 22 episodes. Hey, man, <laughs> I'll keep coming back to this. In 1990, he's in the film Side Out. Oh, no. I didn't <laughs> yes. remember that he was in that. Awesome. And we know who's his character's name is Louie. He's in the film Side Out. We know who's in Side Out, don't we, Bill Bant? C. Thomas Howell? Well, yeah, but Peter Horton. Peter Horton. <laughs> I know you're just messing with me. Gotta have a Peter Horton mention. You know who Peter Horton looks like a little bit is uh, Stephen Weber, who's in the miniseries of The Shining. That's true. So Tony Burton then was in Rocky Five, also in 1990. And he played a character named Bill Jukes in Hook in 1991. So yeah, t- Tony Burton, fun to see him in this. A couple other things regarding him, the person, the man who uh, was famous for playing the corner man in six Rocky movies, was himself in real life a professional heavyweight boxer. Tony Burton, who had a this brief role as Durkin, the garage owner in The Shining, arrived on set one day carrying a chess set in hopes of getting in a game with someone during a break from filming. Stanley Kubrick, an avid chess player who had in his youth played for money, noticed the chess set. Despite production being behind schedule, Kubrick proceeded to call off filming for the day and engage in a set of chess games with Burton. Burton only managed to win one game, but nevertheless, Kubrick thanked him since it had been some time that he'd played against a challenging opponent and uh rest in peace uh he passed in 2016 at age 78 yeah i almost put him down so my headset actor is barry nelson who played Stuart allman who is basically the person who hires jack and gives him the tour of the hotel so this is kind of funny because this kind of ties into our last podcast of poltergeist so barry was in the movie a guy named joe which is shown on the TV during the scene of Poltergeist. Right. His first credit role was as Paul in Shadow of the Thin Man, which was a series of movies starring William Powell and Myrna Loy as a retired detective and his rich wife, which became involved in murder cases they ended up solving. Um, It's one of the great series of the 30s and 40s. TCM usually runs them all the time during uh, New Year's Day Eve. There's six movies in total. If you have a chance, check them out. Many famous actors got their start in this series. Can't recommend it enough. That's definitely a movie franchise I wish they would remake as maybe a television series or something. But if you have a chance to see any of the Thin Man movies, go do it. Barry Nelson's in, I think, the fourth one. Got it. But the role I know Barry Nelson most for was his betrayal of James Bond. In the television series Climax, in the episode Casino Royale, which was based on Ian Fleming's novel, and this um, episode also starred Peter Lorre, Barry Nelson is technically the first James Bond. And I think this episode came out in 1954, so eight years before the original uh, Dr. No. Um, so the episode can be found online, and I will certainly put a link of it in the show notes. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, it is the poker game between Bond and Lachif. I've seen it once before. I actually used to have that on cassette. Someone borrowed it, and uh, I never got it back. Mm. So Barry Nelson, first James Bond, is in The Shining. How about that? Yep. So let's move on and... We could probably go another hour on facts and trivia. So I'm just going to put a bunch of stuff in the show notes. 
we'll just kind of point out some of the ones that we found interesting for the movie. So what do you have for facts and trivia? So, yeah, production took place almost exclusively at EMI Elstree Studios with sets based on real locations. Kubrick often worked with a small crew, which allowed him to do many takes, many, many, many takes, sometimes to the exhaustion of the actors and staff. The new Steadicam mount was used to shoot several scenes, giving the film an innovative and immersive look and feel. Cool. So this is actually one of Stanley Kubrick's few movies that did not get any Oscar nominations, but it actually got two Razzie nominations. One went to Shelley Duvall for Worst Actress, and Stanley Kubrick himself got one for Worst Director. But earlier this year in 2022, the Razzies rescinded Shelley Duvall's Worst Actress nomination because of the treatment she received from Stanley Kubrick throughout the production of this film. Long story short, Stanley Kubrick really, really pushed Shelley Duvall very hard, and uh, his treatment of her during the filming was not great, to the point where she was so stressed that she became ill, and her hair was falling out, and this was... All supposedly for the art, according to Kubrick, and to get the best performance out of her. But again, you can get more in-depth looking it up. Kubrick, being a perfectionist, would do an immense amount of preparation and numerous, numerous tanks. You hear about these, quote-unquote, like horror stories, no pun intended. I did have a little bit, you know, regarding uh, Jack Nicholson, whom at one point uh, was so frustrated with all the changes that they were making in the script that he just would, when he received the new script with all the changes, he'd just throw it out immediately. He'd literally toss it. Right, because he knew it was going to get changed again. He would just change right before they shot, and so he would get the script right before they'd shoot, and he would just memorize his lines minutes before. There was a lot of tension between director and actors, but most famously between Kubrick and Shelley Duvall. 2018, the film was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. While most of the interior shots and even some of the overlook exterior shots were shot on studio sets, a few exterior shots were shot on location by a second unit crew. Uh, Shot at uh, St. Mary Lake and Wild Goose Island in Glacier National Park, Montana. Those were the aerial shots for the opening scenes. Uh, and then we have the Timberline Lodge on Mount Hood in Oregon was filmed for a few of the establishing shots of the fictional Overlook Hotel. Absent in these shots is the hedge maze, something the Timberline Lodge does not have. The outtakes of the opening panorama shots were later used by Ridley Scott for the closing moments of the original cut of the film Blade Runner in 1982. Yeah, that is cool. Did you yeah. remember hearing about that? All right, so this will be my last uh, fact and trivia. Uh, like I said, there's a lot of stuff I'll put in the show notes that you guys can uh, watch and digest later. So I found this interesting. So it's not uncommon for a film's ending to change in post-production, but Kubrick changed the ending of the film after it had been playing in theaters for a weekend. The film version is lost, but pages from the screenplay do exist. Uh, the scene takes place after Jack dies in the snow, So Stuart Ullman, who hired Jack, visits Wendy in the hospital and tells her about the things you saw at the hotel. A lieutenant told me they've really gone over the place with a fine-tooth comb 
and didn't find the slightest evidence of anything at all out of the ordinary. He also encourages Wendy and Danny to stay with him for a while, and then the film ends with text over black. The Overlook Hotel would survive this tragedy as it had so many others. It is still open each year from May 20th to September 20th. It is closed for the winter. Hmm. Very strange. A little creepy unto itself. Interesting. That's great. Just from a technical aspect uh, to bring up the Steadicam. Again, the Shining was among the early half dozen films after the films Bound for Glory, Marathon Man, and Rocky, all released in 76, to use the newly developed Steadicam, a stabilizing mount for a motion picture camera, which mechanically separates the operator's movement from the cameras, allowing smooth tracking shots while the operator is moving over an uneven surface. So that was pretty cool and well used in this film. Finally, for me, I love this kind of stuff. No, just going back to the Steadicam real quick, though. Yeah, yeah, please, please. So the inventor of the Steadicam, uh, Garrett Brown, he was actually involved. Kubrick used him to uh, shoot some of those scenes for him. And just working with Kubrick, he found ways to tinker and even make the Steadicam better because of that, because of all the uh, meticulous stuff that Kubrick needed for the film. So Mm. that was kind of cool. Great stuff. Thanks, man. So after writing Carrie and Salem's Lot, which are both set in small towns in King's uh, Stephen King's native Maine, state of Maine, uh, King was looking for a change of pace for the next book. I wanted to spend a year away from Maine so that my next novel would have a different sort of background. King opened an atlas of the U.S. on the kitchen table and randomly pointed to a location which turned out to be Boulder, Colorado. On October 30th, 1974, Stephen King and his wife Tabitha checked into the Stanley Hotel in nearby Estes Park, Colorado. They were the only two guests in the hotel that night. Here's a quote. When we arrived, they were just getting ready to close for the season, and we found ourselves the only guests in the place with all those long, empty corridors. King and his wife had dinner that evening in the grand dining room totally alone. They were offered one choice for dinner, the only meal still available. Taped. Orchestral music played in the room, and theirs was the only table set for dining. Except for our table, all the chairs were up on the table, so the music is echoing down the hall, and I mean, it was like God had put me there to hear that and to see those things, and by the time I went to bed that night, I had the whole book in my mind. After dinner, his wife decided to turn in, but King took a walk around the empty hotel. He ended up in the bar and was served drinks by a bartender named Grady. Love that shit. <laughs> That's just great stuff. And uh, I, I wanted to to uh, bring up that a little history of Stephen King and his uh, when he'd come up with the idea for the novel The Shining and being influenced uh, by the Stanley Hotel because uh, I've had the opportunity to be uh, to go there a couple times. Estes Park, beautiful, beautiful country. Colorado Rockies, Estes Park. I heavily recommend going. Check out the Stanley Hotel. It is, if you go inside, you understand there's something about it. There's an energy there. And you understand how he uh, gotten maybe got the idea. But check out uh, Estes Park, Colorado. Yeah, this is funny, too, because this kind of reminds me of my sister-in-law. She lives up in New York, and she used to work at this convention center. And the convention center had a hotel that was attached to it. And then we would go up there for Thanksgiving, and we would stay at the convention center. And I would call it the Overlook Hotel because when we stayed there, if there was maybe three other people in the hotel, that was a lot. 
and there wasn't any conventions going on. So the whole place was totally empty. We literally mm-hmm. had it to ourselves. We go to the parking lot. There was six cars in the lot and I would just walk through it. I'm like, yep, I'm living the shining right now. More staff there than people staying at this hotel. That's what I'm talking about, man. Any any kind of building that's meant to house a large number of people that doesn't have that those people, it's always creepy, you know? Yeah, because we get up in the morning to go to breakfast. You know, it's a big room. There'd be like 60 tables in there, and it would just be us and maybe mm-hmm. another couple. And that was it. Man, all the staff just to take care of like four rooms. It was just weird. It's inherently eerie. Yeah, it's bizarre. But I, I love going there because even though I'm in the back, I was like, oh, we got to stay there. I just love it. That's cool, man. I love that. Great story. All right. So let's move on to box office. So The Shining was released on May 23rd, 1980 in a whopping 10 theaters. On an estimated budget of $19 million, it grossed $44.5 million domestically. It surprisingly debuted uh, number four at the box office behind the number one movie of 1980 which was also released on that day, a little space opera called Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back. Uh, The Shining would end up being the 14th highest grossing movie domestically of 1980. So moving on to reviews, when growing up in the early 80s, we would tune in weekly to watch sneak previews to hear their latest reviews on upcoming releases. The Shining was not featured on the show, but Gene Siskel's initial reaction to the movie for the Chicago Tribune was more boring, and on a couple of occasions, downright embarrassing than anything else. The initial reviews for the movie were not very flattering, but over the years, as one critic states, it's somehow risen from the ashes of its own bad press to redefine itself. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 82%, and it has an IMDb rating of 8.4, which lands it in the IMDb Top 250 Movies, where it currently sits at number 61. So that leads us to additional thoughts and questions. What are some additional thoughts and questions we have about The Shining? Well, here's a question for you, because I had brought up the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, and uh, again, I've been in the lobby and looked around and kind of felt the energy. I was like, yeah, this is enough. I don't need to see any more. I'm going to leave now. And I would never spend the night in that hotel. So my question for you was, if someone told you like a horrific or traumatic incident had occurred at a hotel, let's say like multiple murders and a suicide, would you actually stay there? Or have you ever stayed at a haunted hotel? I asked you this question on previous podcast or something similar to it, but I'm going to ask you again. Yeah, no, I don't think I've stayed anywhere that I've known to be haunted. I think I would want to, but probably chicken out unless I had to. I don't know. I'd, I'd like to try it once. I don't know if I'd want to stay in the actual room where the event happened, maybe on the right. floor. I don't think I'm brave enough to do that, but if I could maybe stay on the floor, I could do that at least. Yep. Yeah. I don't, I, pr- I wouldn't do it alone. I, I don't think I'd do it by myself. Right. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, you're pr- braver than I, I think is the bottom line. I don't think very much. <laughs> Go ahead. Ask a question, man. Yeah, this is kind of a thought. All right. So I'll be honest. I was really curious about the food situation throughout the movie. The food situation? Yes. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So they had plenty and they were never going to run out anytime soon. But I was just wondering how that worked. Did they have to like document everything that they ate? So when they came back, they would know what they needed to buy. And was there anything off limits? That they mm-hmm. couldn't have. 
because I mean they had that one freezer of all the meats and stuff. Oh yeah, which I don't yeah. know if you want to keep all that stuff frozen that long. So I think some of it they'd want them to eat. And then what did they do for milk and eggs? Because I mean some stuff is going to spoil. So right. was it like yeah. powdered milk, powdered eggs? So I was just curious how all that worked. And then, uh, of course, post-pandemic, I mean, toilet paper. Hopefully they had plenty. <laughs> I don't know. I, I was really just curious about the food. I was like, there's tons of it. But, I mean, what can you eat? What can you not eat? What was their meals like? Yeah, and it would be tough ordering DoorDash if you want to go that way. Right. Long, long wait for delivery. 25 miles, was it? Something like that to get up the, the road from yeah. wherever it was. But I think it, was, it, just, it would take a lot longer for... <laughs> get up there but and you're not getting it in a snowstorm uh, but yeah with all that food you, you can't help but think about that it's a great question because you're making your food all the time or at least making a sandwich or something so i wonder if that would get tiresome after a while but yeah what do you do about the food that's going to go bad and what are the rules and uh do you have to yeah keep inventory and that's good good questions well because they kept going back in the pantry and i just kept looking at everything there and i was like oh okay they got some tang Kool-Aid, mm-hmm. tons of rice. Lots of canned goods. Cans of ketchup. I thought that was fascinating. I was like, I've never seen that before. They literally yeah. had cans of condiments. I don't remember that. Yeah. Something to think about when watching The Shining. Yeah, there you go. I have a question for you, Bill Bant. Okay. Is Jack Nicholson overacting? No. Even if he is, I, I think it works. <laughs> it's. I think he's obviously making choices I have to assume the direction he was receiving from Kubrick. Kubrick wasn't pulling the reins back at all. He was just letting him rock with it. And at times, it's just like I said early on, he does repeat some of the lines a couple of times, and he just does different versions of it because he's losing his mind. So I think he's just allowed to go for it. Yeah, and that's kind of where I agree with King is if you want someone to play crazy during that, time period you're not going to get someone better but the fact is that we always know him for these offbeat characters it hurts with the initial descent into madness because you know that nicholson can play mad better than anyone else Mm -hmm. now i don't find him over the top i just think that's it's almost a natural performance to him if you just look at his filmography it's very rarely that he plays a reserved character Right. There's right. always something unique about it. But that's what makes him so great. I love it. And overacting doesn't have to mean a bad thing. It doesn't have to be a no, bad no, thing. No, no, no. It can be appropriate. It can be the right choice. And I just love watching him do his thing. The unpredictable nature of it. Right. You just don't know how he's going to deliver a line. They it just he keeps it just keeps changing. It's great because uh, one of the documentaries that I was watching, which is actually done by uh, Kubrick's daughter, I think it's, her name's Vivian, and it's the scene where he's about to smash in the bathroom door with the axe and watching him prepare for it, and he's literally jumping around in the room, like yeah. shaking his hands, trying to get himself all psyched up, and you're just like, wow, okay. I mean, hey, you got to do what you got to do to get yourself in the moment. But it was interesting just to kind of see that behind the, the scenes look, and like I said, I'll, I'll – uh, link it in the show notes so you can check it out too. It's a nice, it's like a half hour documentary that she did. Fantastic. I love it. I'm always curious about an actor's process, you know? Oh yeah. And especially him. He's he's one of the all-time greats. So two quick questions since we're talking about Jack Nicholson. Uh, what is your favorite Jack Nicholson movie, Jason? 
Wow, uh, that's a great question. I should have expected that. I should have seen that one coming. He really is great as the Joker in Batman. One of the great castings for a supervillain of all time. But even just looking over his filmography, because I broke it down a bit in the beginning with the initial thoughts. I mean, it's tough. He's really, I mean, he's so good in Cuckoo's Nest, man. I'd be torn. It's either Shining or Cuckoo's Nest for me. I'm going to stick with this. I, I adore him in this movie. I just do. I can't get enough of him. I think okay. he's one. It's just so fun to watch the whole time, even as dark and demented as it may be what's happening with this character. How about you? I would say my favorite movie of his is Chinatown. And I yeah, would say sure. One Flew or the Cuckoo's Nest is probably his best performance. Mm-hmm. But Chinatown is my favorite movie of his. Fair enough. And then my second one is... Uh, Favorite Stanley uh, Kubrick movie? Yeah, that I mean, that was my question for you as well. So, favorite Kubrick movie? I would, man, I haven't seen Doctor Strangelove in forever. And there's a couple I haven't seen. I haven't seen Barry Lyndon. I haven't seen Lolita. I may have to go with 2001. Yeah, I'm with you. I haven't seen Barry Lyndon yet either. And uh, I know I've been admonished for not seeing that. And I, I never saw Eyes Wide Shut either because I've heard so many conflicting things about it. Mm-hmm. My go-to is Dr. Strangelove. Yeah. Plus I love Peter Sellers. Peter Sellers, man. And the fact he plays three different characters in the movie. I love it. I saw it with my dad a long time ago. I have to revisit that. 2001 for me, I, I, obviously, I mean, I'm a sci-fi fan, but that one's a strange one. Talk about unanswerable questions and leaving you a little bit like, what, what was that? Yes. I remember seeing this. Were you with us? I apologize if I don't remember if you were with us. We saw a 70 millimeter print, I believe it was. Uh, was that the Egyptian? I saw this with Marwan a handful no, of years ago. There. It may have been for an anniversary. If this was 68, 2018. Would that make sense? And it was incredible to see on the big screen. And just to watch it and go, oh my God, this really holds up. And man, this was way ahead of its time. No, oh, certainly. 1968. And to watch it and go, whoa, this guy had a real vision. And he was. He's a visionary. Oh, yeah. Kubrick is a visionary. So, yeah, 2001 would be probably my my choice for Kubrick. But I, I do need to see a few more of his films for sure. Uh, I'm trying to think if I have any other questions that would just blow you away, man. I still, yeah, I need to see Dr. Sleep. I need to see the sequel. I'm, I'm a Ewan McGregor fan. Again, her good things, so... The only other comment I was going to make is they're redoing everything. And I get this strange sensation or feeling that they're going to redo this eventually some way in some shape or form. And it'll be a huge mistake. Well, I mean, they did the TV movie. Yeah. Which was supposed to be closer to King's version of the book, which I think I saw the last five minutes of. But theatrically. I wonder if they would try to do this as a do this as like a Netflix series. They do a streaming series, you know. No surprise there. No, which they could do. I mean, I could see that happen. Uh, but that's it for me, man. Okay, so let's move on to our rating. So on a scale of one to five snowcats, what do you give The Shining? <laughs> it was a pleasure to cover this film for our podcast. I give this a real strong four snowcats. It's Stanley Kubrick. It's singular. It's his chalk fill of his signature shots. We talked about the camera movements, the tracking shots, the steady cam the innovation with that technology, the the music, we probably didn't talk about nearly enough, but the sound design itself, the use of silence, 
there's a lot of dissolves in this movie that actually I thought worked pretty well. Stanley Kubrick's a master of all the filmmaking elements. It's Jack Nicholson just plain going for it. I mean, he does crazy like no other. And it evokes a certain sensation, a sensory experience. It's upsetting. It's so much about the imagery. And it's really one of the great psychological horror films that still gets inside my head today. Very effective. Four snowcats for me. All right. Yeah, I was kind of up in the air what my rating was going to be. And I think I was going to let the pod dictate where I was going to go with this. Sure. But for once, you're actually giving it the higher rating. I'm giving it three and a half. Uh, okay. Snowcats. I think there's just too many open-ended questions for me, and that bothers me a lot. Mm-hmm. But on a technical side, love all the camera movement, Danny Lloyd's acting in it. But I think I agree with King a little bit. I wanted to see the full arc of Jack Torrance descending into madness, not being already mad to begin with. Agreed. Yeah, I must feel like I'm one of the initial reviewers of the, of the movie. And maybe after, you know, uh, more watches of the film, I will get swayed. Because, I mean, people really put this up there as one of the greatest horror movies of all time. And I'm not going to fight with them on that. That's fine. But I just need a little more. I'm sticking with three and a half. You're entitled to your rating and your opinion. And speaking of which, after saying that, I, I do feel this is one of those types of movies, too. If you have to be willing to to allow it to kind of envelop you, to take you away in order for you to really kind of buy it in a, on a certain level. Yeah. I know I'll be hitting the bookstore soon and trying to see if they if I can get the uh, book just to read it, just to see where it went. Mm-hmm. All right. So I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please take the time to subscribe, give us a review, and rate us. If you want to reach out, you can email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, movies you want us to cover, or recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook, Meta at All80smoviespodcast, tweet us at Podcast All 80s, and now we are on TikTok, so you can follow us on that. I think that's All 80s Movies Podcast, Jason. Yes, it is. Okay. Uh, so next week, uh, we're going to shift gears and talk some comedy with 1983's Mr. Mom, starring Michael Keaton, Terry Garr, and Martin Mull. We hope you join us again. Have a totally great week, everyone. I love that we're going from The Shining to Mr. Mom. Ah, Bill Bantz, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world. Great stuff. The hedge mage. uh, See, I can't do it either. Uh, The hedge mage. The hedge mage. I know. Try to say that three times real fast. Okay. The maze. Yes, of the hedges. Hedge, the maze. All right, we'll call maze, it the maze of hedges. The garden maze. I'm just going to call it the garden maze.